speak today about investigating the nature of mind. In order to recognize the nature of mind, it's important to learn to discern a difference between awareness and thinking. The nature of mind is to know awareness. The activity of mind is to judge, to compare, to remember, to analyze, to proliferate thought. How do we recognize this nature of knowing that's coherent and unified and not confuse it with something that is dependent upon knowledge of diverse things? Sometimes this process is called the inquiry into the nature of mind. Dilgo Kiense Rinpoche said, failure to recognize the void nature of mind is the very source of samsara. We can use mindfulness and investigation techniques to inquire into this nature of mind, to Turn the attention and look at the looker. Subjectivity can, in a way, become the object of our interest or attention. We can inquire, what is this self? We're curious about this self-formation, not just in the depths and the stillness of a meditation session where we're sitting in quiet, but we ask ourselves, Who am I? What is this self? What is knowing when we're in pain, when we're sad, when we're afraid? What knows that feeling? Who's afraid? What's afraid? What's hurting? What's sad? We can inquire any time, whether we're still or we're in activity, whether we're in relationship or alone. And let it be a genuine inquiry, not an excuse to express a belief, a good Buddhist belief, in no self. In fact, perhaps no self isn't a very good rendering of the Pali term anatta. Not self might be a better rendering of that term. Because no self implies the duality of self and no self. Not-self invites an inquiry into what it is we are constructing and believing to be a sense of self. What is this process of identification, of I-making? The inquiry into identification can lead us into a deep and authentic insight, but this insight should not remain as a belief in not-self, a belief in emptiness that's quite useless. We test our understanding of anatta in times of challenge, in times of difficulty, in the midst of activity, in the midst of life, because understanding is only useful to the extent that it ends suffering. No matter how much you understand about the Buddha's teaching, and can answer correct answers. Nobody actually cares if you've got the right answer. Nobody really cares if you've had a great spiritual experience. The criteria for value isn't in an experience that that passes, but it's the degree to which we experience our freedom. Does the insight and suffering? Does it loosen the grip of identification and ignorance? It's too easy to adopt a view of emptiness, a thought or an idea that nothing exists, such as a self, to adopt perhaps a view of process, or an idea that everything is illusion. And then we might think that we understand the essence of the teachings. 
we can fool ourselves into the belief that we understand because we may be able to quote scripture or we may be able to describe an experience that we've had that resembles things in scripture. Stuff we've heard about in Dharma talks, experiences we've found curious, interesting. But it would be dangerous to believe that we understand something because we've either read about it or had a flash of experience that resembles something that we've read about. The nature of mind defies description. Punjaji used to ask people to describe their profoundest experience. Many people had profound experiences with him. And he would ask them to describe it. He would ask them to um, make a poem, sing a song, um, talk about it, describe it. Um, It was quite a dynamic um, engagement. And he used that attempt to describe as a means of sustaining that exploration, furthering the exploration in a territory where no words really worked, no processes, no practices, no techniques really held up. In that territory of no mind, he would play with description, enjoy the revelation. Some people would sing, some people would dance, some people would laugh, cry, write poetry, or remain silent. But for all the poems, for all the songs, and for all the moments of tears and silence, he always said no one had ever described it. Often we look into subjectivity, into this experience of not-self the experience beyond the constructions of self, through penetrative questions. Ramana Maharshi was fond of the question, who am I? Kusan Sunim often taught the question, what is it? And Tulkur Ergen Rinpoche often asked, what is the mind, what knows? Regardless of the question that we ask, or if we use no words at all to pursue the inquiry, the investigation is a way of holding a question, holding a curiosity, holding an interest with clarity and with alertness so that we rest not in the seeking of an answer, but we rest in an open and stable not knowing without any fixation, without taking up a position, and we're open. We're open to whatever might be revealed. As the mind gets calm and steady in a meditation retreat, as samadhi develops, this creates a stable container. In that container, we might find we are interested in something. It might be a question. It might be a word that you hear a teacher say. It might be something that you see and there's just a spark of of vitality, of interest around it. And that spark of interest, as it lands in a calm and steady mind, gets held in such a way that we don't immediately pursue the answer but we nurture the question. We remain open to not knowing. It's that not knowing that permits the possibility of discovery. Since my practice um, 
since in my practice I had the experience of working with a diverse range of teachers and practices, I found that different people introduced different techniques for investigating the nature of mind. And I'd like to give you a kind of brief summary of um, almost a dozen different approaches to this exploration, this inquiry. The first is to ask ourselves a simple question. What is the mind? Where is the mind located? Where does knowing occur? We talk about the mind as though it's a thing, but does awareness have a location? Can you find it? Does it have a color? Does it have a shape? Now, I'm not asking these questions so that you decide and create a picture of a mind that you could paint, oh, it's blue and it's shaped like a crescent moon. No, that's not what I'm implying at all. But we're curious to discover this thing we talk about as though it's a thing. And so we poke around with curiosity to look into the mind. We explore these questions without expecting an answer, without expecting a form. In the Theravadan tradition, one of the um, favored models is of the five aggregates affected by clinging. And we observe what are called these five aggregates, whether they're affected by clinging or not affected by clinging, in their arising, their duration, and their passing. And we experience experience through what are called these aggregates. The first is form. Now, form doesn't just mean material stuff. It means the objects that the senses experience. It could be a sound. It could be a sight, a visual object. It could be a scent. But there are certain forms that impact us. There's feeling as the second aggregate, pleasant, unpleasant, and that feeling which is neither pleasant nor unpleasant. There's perception, which is the recognition of something. Being able to look at the chair and see red, you know, red, recognize it. To, in order to recognize something, we have to have previously had the experience. So it goes to memory, a previous experience, to be able to recognize, oh, that's red. But we're not talking about elaborate, discursive thought here. It's just the recognition. Then there's mental formations, which are more elaborate forms of thoughts, all the various thoughts that issue from the perception. And consciousness, which registers. It's a kind of a basic registration of the impact of an experience. So we have form, feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness, which compose the five aggregates. When these aggregates are affected by clinging, they come together in such a way with attachment, and that attachment is the attachment to a self-position. I am experiencing form, feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. When affected by clinging, we have a strong sense of self-reference, a strong sense of I, a personal center. It's a more basic and primal form of clinging than just, I like this taste, or I want to keep this sweater, or this is mine. But it relates to the same process of creating this sense of self that distinguishes self from all others in the world. These five aggregates affected by clinging are an early
early mo- early Buddhist model of how we construct this sense of self. Not as a philosophy of a sense of self, but how do we do it in a moment of contact, in a moment of hearing something? How do we construct the sense of self through hearing, through seeing, through tasting, through touching, through a thought, emotion? This sense of self arises in a moment of contact, and we can observe and investigate the arising and the passing of these five aggregates affected by clinging. And in working with this model, then, experience quite vividly, directly, the arising and the passing of the concept of self in our experience. We begin to understand how perception functions, how experience occurs. And what we see is experience occurs due to various conditions that come together. And we begin to see the emptiness of these aggregates individually and collectively. They function. But it functions as a conditioned process, as an empty process. In each feeling, perception, form, feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness, in each experience, we can't find something that we could call self. There is a number of discourses where the Buddha spoke about what it meant to see with wisdom. And one of my favorite discourses is a talk that he gave to his own son, Rahula, where he taught Rahula to see with proper wisdom thus. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. When we understand that this process is about seeing with wisdom, this is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself, then we no longer fear that not-self might imply some kind of um, um, aggressive eradication of an ego, some kind of self-destructive process. It's not that at all. These aggregates are not lost. They function. They're part of life. Every living, experiencing mind and body functions. There's form, feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. That's part of life. But do they function through clinging or are they not affected by clinging? We empty the aggregates, these formations of the clinging, so so that there's a clear human functioning without taking experience so personally. This is really one of the primary models in the um, Theravada tradition. Um, there are a couple of others, dependent arising, etc. Um, but this is quite a nice one to work with in a meditation experience. But many traditions have variations of, of um, ways to practice so that we can see the emptiness of things. When I lived in India... Um, in the Hindu tradition, they would often say, neti, neti, not this, not this, not this. And it encouraged a practice of very diligent letting go, releasing, abandoning. Every perception of mind, of every perception where the mind tried to take a stand, tried to form, tried to land, tried to say, I am here, this is mine. Oh, we look at it and say, not this, not this, not this. Poonjaji said, find who is bound and who is suffering. Find out who you are. 
You are not the dress, not the skin or the hair or the nails. You are not the bones or the muscles or the brain. You are not the ego or the mind or the senses. Reject all these just for one moment and what is left. Reject what you are not and what is revealed in front of you. You are not all these things which appear and disappear. What are you? What remains? The Buddha had a beautiful teaching where he said, simply, abandon what is not yours. This will lead to your welfare and happiness for a long time. I love that teaching. You don't have to go abandoning other things, just what is not yours. Look into the process that constructs the concept of mine, mind-making, possessiveness, and just abandon only those things that you genuinely decide are not yours. Look into it and see what is it that can be said to be mine and what cannot be said to be mine. When we really ask ourselves the question, is this mine? It makes abandoning, it makes renunciation, it makes letting go. Not just natural, it, it's the, um, it, one simply ceases to cling it. How can you stay attached to something that you've just seen? It's not mine. But fortunately, fortunately, the Buddha was quite clear. He didn't just say, abandon what is not yours, this will lead to your welfare and happiness for a long time. He then asked a rhetorical question, and what is not yours? And then he answered it. Form, feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. He went through and explained each of the aggregates are not yours. It's a very profound thing to contemplate. How can we embrace so fully our experience and yet not take it personally? In the process of looking into subjectivity, we inquire into what is the self? Who or what is experiencing anything? Who or what is seeing? Who or what is hearing, thinking, feeling emotion, tasting, etc.? What knows? Who am I? Is the knower in the body or in the mind? Where is the perceiver located? Is the perceiver that hears a sound the same perceiver that sees a visual object? Is that the same perceiver that feels an emotion? We look into this subjectivity, this self-reference point that we seem to take for granted in life in the way we normally talk about our experience. What is this reference point? What is this perceiver? We can incline our attention to the bare knowing of experience rather than the object of experience, the object that is known. It can be an interesting process to become mindful of knowing so that we're not so entranced and seduced by the ups and downs of changing experiences. The fascination with the particular objects of the senses can end, and yet there can be a steadiness of knowing and an interest in that process of knowing. From the point of view of simply knowing, does it matter whether we're knowing the breath? or a physical sensation, a pleasant sensation or an unpleasant sensation? Does the knowing, is the knowing affected? 
by this experience being a mundane, worldly experience, or by being a spiritual or esoteric or meditative experience. We can experience a profound non-clinging through realizing that the objects per se have no essential importance. There is no hierarchy to perceptions. Perceptions simply occur due to various conditions. And all the objects that we habitually invest with importance, we like these ones, we want them, so we invest them with desire. We don't like those, so we avoid them. We we relate to them with aversion. The objects themselves are insubstantial. And so we look, what is this knowing process. We're accustomed to perceiving objects that are known, but do we perceive the knowing? We may at first approach this question of knowing through the objects, but does knowing occur in the object that were known? If I'm looking at the bell, is the knowing occurring in the bell? Is it occurring in the mind? And and what is this mind? Is it occurring in a sense base? If I'm touching it, is it occurring somehow in the fingers? I'm not looking for a scientific answer for this. It's much more practical from an investigative perspective. Where we look for the knowing is in the knowing itself. This question simply invites us to turn the attention off the objects and explore the mind as it's knowing, to become aware of that bare process of knowing. This can be a very important thing for people who've been practicing a close association with the breath for a long time in mindfulness practice because we can very easily get very, very close to the breath and get all the nuances of the breath and really relate to the object. And in that object, we might see the impermanence, we might see the ungraspability, we might have lots of insights in relationship to objects of perception. But mindfulness does not just rest on the objects of perception. We can be mindful of the process of knowing itself. And sometimes turning the attention off the object opens the space for a new discovery. That space itself is often taken as a place for exploration. When you're aware of hearing, are you aware of just the sounds or the space between the sounds? When you scan through the body, feeling whatever you feel in the body, does the attention only rest on sensation, or are you also aware of the absence of sensation, the space between sensations? When a thought arises, and you experience that thought, and you notice that the thought ends, Are you aware of the space before another thought arises? The Buddha encouraged us in the Satipatthana Sutta to not only be mindful of the presence of experiences, but to be mindful of the absence of experience. The presence and the absence the arising and the ceasing. Sometimes mindfulness of absence is forgotten or given much less attention than it's due. But this perception of space is a rich area for exploration because it invites us to, again, unhook the attention from that preoccupation and seduction with objects, I see this. I feel this. 
as the object fades, before another one catches our attention, can we stay awake in that space, that gap between two breaths, between two thoughts, between two sounds? In some of the Tibetan practices that I did, we did these um, mingling the mind with space practices. They were quite, they were quite, quite lovely, actually. Um, and it was suggested to sit in a place where there was a long view, you know, kind of like at the edge of a cliff or um, looking out at a, at a vast ocean. Um, actually, this spot right here I found to be quite nice because you can look down the valley and there's this, this great open space. And here then we rest in an open gaze with that experience, noticing if the mind starts to fixate on bird, bush, twig, bug, and go to the particulars. Or can we just rest and mingle the mind in the experience of space? This is sky-gazing practice. I mentioned the other practice um, of just relax, of learning to rest the mind in the last talk that I gave. Doing nothing. Noticing what the preoccupation is with doing and letting it go and just learning to relax. Periodically, I teach in Israel, and I love teaching with that community. Christopher has been very involved with that group for many, many years. And um, it's a dynamic and quite an intense community. Um, on the, a couple of years ago, I led a retreat there, and the theme of the entire retreat was just relax, because they were so wound up. <laughs> they were really wound up. And so we worked with this relaxation, What is a depth, a profound relaxation? What is a profound release? What is it to sit, to walk, to eat, to work, to move through the day without needing to give rise to this agent, this doer, this um, busy person? but just simply act. To continue to release that sense of doer until experience flows naturally, vividly, as though the action is without an actor. I want to mention another technique that was used in some Dzogchen retreats, although I don't suggest, in fact, I suggest you do not do it here. And, but it was an interesting technique, and it, it does call to mind uh, a certain um, practice, which um, is, <laughs> we'd all be sitting in silence, right? Mm. And then the teacher would yell, like really loud, would shout, pet, really, really, really loud. And it would jolt us out of whatever fixation was going on, if there was a fixation. It was interesting. If the mind was clear and empty, it would just sort of like float through, just like anything else. But if the mind was caught in some kind of fantasy or some thought process, it would be like, oh, a sudden shock. But equally so, if the mind was fixated on a, in a kind of a concentrated trance sort of experience or um, just sort of really stuck too closely to doing its meditation, it would also wake the mind up from any kind of, um, of fabricated state. It was a very interesting practice, and of course um, not one that I was most fond of, but I did find it tremendously useful to continue to break the fixation. In a much more gentle way, I often use the four postures just to move through a sequence of postures um, fairly rapidly and allow the attention to continue to settle without differentiation of attention. 
you know, to really hold the space, say, in a meditation hall, but to move through the different postures so that um, the mind doesn't get as fixated in any particular mode of meditating. I've found that instead of shouting, it's sometimes if I notice the attention getting into a real fixed kind of relationship um, to either thought or, or a meditative object, to just break it myself, either with a kind of a sense of release or just opening the eyes and looking up sort of dispels, um, dispels a lot of uh, fixation and thought. So we can check our own practice and notice what helps us to settle into a natural awareness, a natural wakefulness. And when are we really fixated, either in discursive thoughts or even fixated on an idea of emptiness? If there's fixation, it is not emptiness. Another practice that may bring people to an experience of this um, uh, dissolving of self uh, perspective, that that not holding of the the subject position so strongly, might be uncontrived devotion, to really merge in devotion, in love, to let go so fully of self-interest that we've surrendered that position of I, me, and mine. When I lived and served with Punjaji, that experience of living in his home was one that was filled with utter devotion. And at one point in the process, I suddenly became a little concerned that I was growing, that I could grow attached to him. And I asked him if devotion was necessary because I had not never conceived of myself as a devoted person. I had always thought of myself as a critical person. So it was rather shocking to see what was manifesting. And it was simply of this very strong devotion. And Punjaji said, when I asked him, is devotion necessary? He said, yes. And then he said, but do not be devoted to the guru. He said, be totally devoted to emptiness, which is no devotion at all. Devotion is a quality of fullness of being, fullness of presence, that is a rel- that may be a relative quality, but allows the mind to break through, through that love, through that connection, to break through to a profound realization of things. The last approach I want to mention is of working with the timeless instant. Usually, time is referential. There's past, there's future, there's present as concepts. And we refer experience in time to these concepts of past, of present, and of future. But what is a presence that is not in relationship to past or to future. If we say, I want to be present, but exclude past and future, we have created a boundary. We've created a box, a trap, a relationship. What is an experience beyond past, beyond future and beyond present or perhaps as Christopher would say get rid of that beyond what's that beyond can we rest search inquire into a timeless moment a moment that is not big not small an experience we might call infinity, but infinity is neither big nor small. Something that's not short, 
not brief. But we also couldn't quite say vast. It can't be described. When we ask those questions, what is this? Who am I? What knows? We ask in that timeless moment, a moment that is not of time. Punjaji used to often snap his fingers and he would say, how long does it take to realize who you are? And he would say, not even a split second, not even a finger snap. Because even this finger snap, even a split second, puts the question in time and locates the search in a concept of time. Beyond the structures of time, beyond the boundaries of past, of future, of present, beyond the limitations of experience, can we access a realization that is untouched by time, to know it before thought arises? A thought arises. Where does it arise from? A thought ceases. Where does it go? Among these several approaches I've mentioned this afternoon, different people will find different approaches that seem to spark interest, curiosity, kind of resonate or not. There are so many ways to explore something that is rather unnamed, a luminous, unexcelled realization of freedom. And different methods will suit different people. But we can all know something. The thing is wrong in there. We can, I don't know how to say it. We can all know something that is beyond what is conditioned. And we can use the various tools of a calm mind, a dynamic investigation, and a clear, mindful attention to explore something that goes beyond the conditions, that goes beyond time, something that is not limited, not contained not bound or affected by clinging. Some people will call this realization peace or truth. Some will call it the unconditioned, the unborn, the deathless, the immeasurable. Some may call it God or emptiness, primordial awareness, or some longer descriptions such as the infinite expanse of unfabricated wakefulness. I rather like that one. You can call it whatever you like. It doesn't matter what we call it because no name ever touches it. Usually we name this and that. We perceive this thing and that thing, right and left. We know our experience through comparisons of before and after subjects, objects, seer, seeing, and seen. All this is dualistic language, and it's easy in this language to get fixated on views and opinions, on different mental constructs, descriptive words. But please don't construct a vision or a description of peace and try to create it, of emptiness and try to get it. What we must realize has never strayed into dualism and cannot be contained in words. So we ask, what knows? In order to recognize something that is not opposed to anything at all. Before perceptions fabricate the concepts of things. This is not to realize or to take a position, a stance, It's a realization that is neither conceptual or non-conceptual. 
It's not for a form, and it's not of the formless. It's an exploration that points to a radical non-position, a wakefulness that does not, is not attached to a view, a recognition of what is not this, not that, not both, not neither, something that is not bound by all the logical possibilities. Let's have some quiet moments.
May we see with proper wisdom thus, this is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.